Blog Talk Radio. That's the way it goes. 
Anyway, go ahead, Stephen. Yeah, and it just seemed like adult sci-fi and sci-fi were really getting on the ball. And Conan, well, there was like a million Conan ripoffs in the gun gun already because they thought that Conan was just going to be a giant movie, which it was. Oh, yeah, it was. Agreed. But we'll get into it a little bit later. There was this one tiny little film that threw a wrench in I like the British version better, sorry. A Spanner in the Works. And this movie just basically took every cent there was in 72. I mean, 82. Every cent that summer went to that movie. And we'll get into that a little later, but... It was the and for biggest... some reason, the two biggest films, fan-wise, was yeah. Go ahead. Thing and Blade Runner. Those films nowadays are like written in stone, people worshipping at the foot of Allah classics. You won't find someone who doesn't love those movies. Am I right, Right. people? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Not only that, you won't find people that, that, I mean, say you have a gathering of ten people, one of them is going to say they're an expert on one of those movies. That's how much people know those movies, love those movies, think they're experts on those movies. (laughs) Yeah, but before we start dissecting the films one by one, what do you think of the choice of releasing them on the same freaking day? Well, that was a that was an incredible type of stupid, to say the least. Well, don't you know? Remember, this is still back in the age of um, America. You know, with the it, it's still the the Cold War thing going on, and for some reason the Cold War thing was in studio executives' heads. They would take their best movies of the year for e- for each season and release them on the same day, so they could whoever won could gloat over the other one. It was incredibly stupid, like you said, Carl. But that's that was their thinking back then. And yeah, it was stupid. Absolutely dumb, 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 dumb. Yeah. And also, they're pairing the two cerebral films. Those are both pretty cerebral films. And and I don't want to talk about the other film that came out a week yet because we haven't yet a week before. But but you know, you've got two cerebral films. You've got one audience. You're splitting your audience through two very good, very thoughtful films uh, that are both sci-fi. Not yeah. a not a good decision at all. And it was followed two weeks before, or three weeks. It was a little bit before. The first one of this series, some reviews have called it the inaction picture. All that we know is that it was too 
know, pretty much flopped at the box office. So when Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan was announced, no one was really on the edge of their seats, were they? Well, except for the true Star Trek, the Trekkies. Yeah. The Trekkies. Uh, yeah. Certainly, I was looking forward to it because I loved the original Starseed. And, 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 and I loved Khan and I loved Ricardo Montalbum. And when I found out that he was going to be in it, they're like, yeah, right. I'm in on that. I'm okay with that. Yeah. And then it it was big. It's like a joke. People, uh, in the summer of 82, people knew two things mattered to them. One was the second film, which we'll get into a little later. And first was. Where were you when Spock died? <laughs> right. That oh, was yeah. the big, the giant question. The giant I mean, question. that was a big hit. And Star Trek fans were like, oh, what the, that, that, what the, fuck, what the, where did that, <laughs> Yep. It was almost a shock on the level of Luke, I'm your father. Or would you say that Spock dying was the bigger one? The Spock dying was the bigger one. Absolutely the bigger one. And it was pretty much a secret until the film premiered. You know, nothing yeah, like that could happen last, today. Yeah. Even the review copies that they showed the reviewers had... The last ten minutes of the movie missing, or they had them sign signatures that they couldn't reveal what happened at the end. Right. You know. Right. Right, because they wanted people to be shocked by it. They wanted people to cry, which everyone did. So, you know, I mean, they got what they wanted. Those guys were smart. Okay, they were smart. The two smaller films, The Thing and Blade Runner, those executives, those guys were dumb because those two films should have been released in July. One and then the other. Well, here's the thing. uh, No, not August, no. Yeah, August. That's what Carpenter wanted once he had, and we're going to get into The Thing now. Carpenter, once he saw the competition that he was going ahead of in June, he was, uh, I want to be in August. No, you'll be all right. I want to be in August. Please move my film. Please move it. But you're nothing like them. I don't care. He understood that having so much good sci-fi that close together Someone's going to take it up the butt, even if all four right. of their films are the best films ever. Right. 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 I don't know how to say it anymore. Yeah. But usually the filmmaker does know the best time to release their own film. They yeah, know but it's that, just, that it's doesn't mean the publicity people believe them. Yeah, well, the yeah, exact, I, mean, I can the understand exact. the studio's position. Oh, Blade Runner, Star Trek 2, they're three different kinds of films in tone. 
You'll get each of your audiences. You won't step on each other's toes. That's not, you know, I don't know why they didn't. Well, okay, I do know why. You know, psychology and behavioral um, psychiatry, that kind of stuff was just in its, its early, early stages still. People still didn't understand um, the motivation of audiences the way they understand them now. And so that's why the egos of executives, you know, studio heads, could, could have the last say. Today, they can't have the last say. It's all algorithms and crap like that. Yeah. It, it's not and an easy job to, to, to uh, universally not, hold hated. Hold on, Steve. Hold on. Okay. Go ahead, Carl. It's not an easy job to, to you know, uh, forecast uh, when the right when the right time for a film to be out and so on and so forth. But you would think that if you have one genre and you have four movies in one genre, no matter if there's a difference in tone or, or whatever the case would be, that that you would want to spread them out because wouldn't you think that even though there's differences in tone, that uh, if you're a sci-fi geek like like Vicky and I'm somewhat a sci-fi geek, uh, uh, then you'd want to see all four. It makes all sense. Yeah, it you know, makes I, sense. I, I've but... never understood that. Go ahead, Steve. But we also got to remember. The thing was universally hated across the board. All of the horror magazines gave it bad reviews. Cinema Fantastic so called it a boring piece of crap with no with no char- real characters in it. The mainstream critics just called it, uh, what was it? Uh, Glopola died at the butcher house. And all, all this movie about was the effects. Yep. Tell the story about that uh, about uh, Ebert. You told me that story over the phone. Oh, the one where when he first seen it, he hated it. And then five years later, he was praising it as a lost classic. And not only that, he was, he was quoting ahead. his own. He was quoting his own review, and saying, yeah. saying, you know, his previous review and this and this. And he finally says, "Well, what can I say? The reviewer was wrong, and it was me." Yeah, he said. Yeah, he admitted that he was wrong, and Howard Hawks fans and fans of the original thing were all. Well, we've seen how much remakes are loved nowadays. Was the same in '82. What I I didn't hear your question. No, neither did I see. Yeah, because you were talking. So, what did you just ask? What was the question you just asked? Me. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was just going to say Howard Hawks fans 
hated it too because oh. the oh, same yeah. hate for remakes were hate were yeah. the same back then. Right, right, because it was completely um, uh, different. But you also have to remember this too. Okay, eighty two is really still very close to Gunsmoke. All right, and in those actors um, were still alive, and their following and fans were still alive. And so those who were in the original, um, the thing from outer space, whatever the real title is, um, the people that went to see it were expecting what they saw before. And so they panned the film also, because I remember, I remember very well my parents' generation of people going, what the fuck was that? They ruined that movie, all that gore, and what was that? Scared the crap out of me. You know, of course, that's what it was meant to do, is scare the crap out of you. But they were not Mm -hmm. expecting what they saw. They were not expecting a horror, horror, horror film. Okay. No. And and they certainly um, I can't think of the guy's name right now. Gunsmoke. They they were certainly Dang not. Yeah, they that. were. Right. They were certainly not thinking that that thing was going to turn out to be not their lovable Gunsmoke character. Yeah, but James Arness, when asked if he had seen it, he said it was actually a pretty damn good movie. Yeah. Yeah, but that was him, not the fans. That's different. He's in the business. He okay, and how did you guys first see the thing? You go ahead. Well, you want me to go first? Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, okay. Um, okay, <laughs> because you mentioned Star Trek, um, I I was very poor. In 1982, we had a very strict budget because we needed to eat. And so, but we loved films. My husband and I, we we loved movies, and we would always go to the movies if our budget allowed. And so here we are, June, and there's all these movies, right? And so the thing was not a priority because Star Trek was a priority. And so... I didn't see the thing until it came on cable. And I actually watched it by myself one night. And I couldn't sleep for two weeks after that. I was so freaking scared to my soul. And this is the thing about it is that the coronavirus and the thing, any virus, any kind of creature thing that can get into your body without you seeing it scares me to death. Thank you, John Carpenter. (laughs) (laughs) Well, for me... So I didn't see it first in the theater. Yeah. For me, just getting a little little raw, but by this time, my dad was uh, fooling around with another woman, so they went to the drive-in to watch a movie. And then my dad come home with, like, his eyes were like, he was like a giant sci-fi geek, so he made me one. His eyes were like giant. He's like, 
Steve, you got to see this movie. It's a monster movie. There's some blood in it, but you'll like it. And I'm like, no, I don't like scary movies. He's like, just trust <laughs> me. Let's go see it. And then the next week, it just whooped my ass. Just knocked me off the seat. <laughs> I have. Uh, so, so for me, I was in New York at the time. And uh, we're talking about two films, and I saw them both in the theater. Uh, and, and the thing, uh, I knew the original really well, and I really liked the original, but I also knew the original story, Who Goes There by Jack Finley. I read that when I was a kid. Um, and so I saw this, and I thought it was much more, much closer to the original story. And also the effects, which are all uh, uh, practical at that point in time, just blew me away. And, and of course, there's the one famous one, which I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about, uh, uh, which the whole audience, like, I think it, uh, I saw it in New York, so it was a decent-sized audience. Uh, uh, they all looked at that like, I think everybody in the audience says, what the fuck? And you all know which one I'm talking about. So. And I love that John Carpenter screwed with the uh, of the cast too, because you know the famous head that turns into a crab. That's exactly yeah. what we're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> well, what happened, Vicky, is none of the cast knew that was going to be there. Right. Right. So Kurt Russell and the other guy didn't know what the hell was going on. And when they seen the other guy look behind him with a whoa look on his face. <laughs> and then he turned around and then he says one of the most famous lines of the movie, which I love. You gotta Yo. be fucking kidding me. Ninety <laughs> percent of the time he did not tell the actors, what the effects were going to be. All they know is they walked in and they just seen a bunch of tubes and stuff. Mm-hmm. He wanted well, that to create be- that sense of paranoia. Right. Yeah. Right. That's uh, because it works so well in Alien. Mm-hmm. Plus, uh, one of the, act- the actors came up to Carpenter. He, they asked him, he said, would my character know he was the thing? And, Car- and Carpenter said, sometimes you would, sometimes you wouldn't. Yep. Well, that's so how exactly far the level is working on bringing that point up? Well, you know, the, the, the other thing, too, is is that the... You know, like like the one scene where the body clamps down on the one guy's on uh, uh, arms uh, when uh, and that whole thing. You know, some of the actors would have to know what was going on, but nonetheless, man, those, those uh, reactions were all, uh, you know, you know, extemporaneous. And that that of course, you know, you mentioned Alien. But Alien had an, uh, an immense effect on this film. And I wanted to ask Vicki if, if, if she agrees with that. 
that alien coming like three years earlier had an effect on how Carpenter worked the story and worked the film for, for the thing. Well, yeah, um, I think I was just saying that, that, um, you know, when you don't tell your actors what's going to happen so that you can truly have their reactions, that's what Ridley Scott did in Alien, and it right. worked uh, completely to, uh, you know, Alien's advantage, and so Carpenter, of course, was influenced by that, but Alien itself influenced uh, Carpenter's look and tone of the thing. But the whole thing is, is that the thing, the original story and the original movie all happened in corridors, just like Alien. Alien happened nice. in corridors, yeah. mostly. And so there, the two movies are, are almost parallel in what they do. And so you have to be different. When you're Carpenter... Three years later, you have to be different and you have to show a different aspect of your monster, which I think he did brilliantly. Because this monster also invades the body, also explodes the body, all this stuff. But then you also have an alien, you also have the other creature hunting humans, whereas this creature, you, you don't know when you touch like a virus. A, a surface that is infected You don't know how this creature Infects other people So there's a mystery there That is completely Different than alien You always wonder Where did the alien come from Blah 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 All that stuff in alien But in, in the thing You're not even caring about Where did this thing come from Where was its origin Anything like that You're just wondering how do I not get infected by this? How do I quarantine myself? How do I shelter in place so I don't become that thing? Yeah. That's the that's the brilliant part of this movie that wasn't done in the first film. Yeah. Right. That's and true. here's the biggest complaint about the movie. We're going to go over them one by one so I can hear your opinions on them. One, there's no romantic interest in the movie. That's why the movie isn't any good. Where's my puke bag? That's a puke bag. (laughs) Am I joking, Carl? Didn't almost all of the reviews were negative complain about that? Not even close. You're absolutely dead on about that. And it sucks, too. This stupid, this most yeah. stupid idea. Agreed. Because it was oh. one woman and a bunch of men back in 1982. Every man was. Yeah, there would have been race scenes. No, I, I take that back. Um, no, but you know what? She would have had to like have her blouse ripped and a boob fall out. You know, that kind of stuff, that would just take away from what was really happening in that story. And that story is the coronavirus story. You don't know. Well, not the virus story. Uh, Isolation and paranoia. And that brings us up to the second complaint about this movie. We didn't get to know the characters. We didn't know who they are. They were just ciphers. 
Yeah, if we knew the characters. We will be able to probably pinpoint who is, who isn't. Much better than we could. Right. Right, but what... Is this a character-driven movie? No. It's a horror movie. And I'm sorry, but... They tried to fix that problem in the TV version. I will leave it to you. Yenza, both you and Carl have never seen the TV version before, have you? No, I never I don't know have. What the, I don't know what it is. Yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. So here we go with how they tried to introduce the characters in a TV version for us to relate to them. Warning, deep hurting is about to immense. Windows. Hates being a radio operator. Hates being here. Can't wait to get back to the States. McCready, a top helicopter pilot, worked for Hughes Aircraft as a test pilot until he got into a confrontation with top management and resigned to take this assignment. Child, a mechanic who went from trade school to the airlines. None better. Gary. A 30-year army man who worked up through the ranks to become an officer. Likes the job of station manager. Clark, in charge of the dogs. Doing a study on the effects of extreme cold on animal behavior. These men were commissioned by the United States National Science Institute to gather data concerning the physical and natural sciences on the continent of Antarctica. First girl darn week of winter. Ah, oh, come on, it's four stitches, barely graded. Dr. Kappa, graduate of Harvard Medical School, received his training at Massachusetts General Hospital. A personal tragedy in his life sent him on this adventure. Bennings, Meteorologist, an old pro. Many papers published in his field. Blair, a pioneering microbiologist whose research on DNA helped lay the foundation for genetic engineering. Many discoveries in the field of cellular growth. Palmer, second string chopper pilot, crack mechanic who hopes to start up his own business as a mechanic upon completion of this assignment. Norris, geophysicist, was a professor at Caltech has an incipient heart condition. Knowles, inventive cook, a product of Watts, interested in the Antarctic. Fuchs, assistant biologist who worked with Blair at the Rockefeller Foundation.
come from the galaxy. Who knows what evil lurks in the skies? Be on guard. Watch those around you. For who knows what today, tonight, or tomorrow will bring. John Carpenter was so pissed off when he seen this that it was only showed once, and he said that if they even tried to show this again on TV, he would sue their ass off. (laughs) I would, too. That was the most boring thing ever. (laughs) What do you think those little additions added to their characters? Not a goddamn thing. (laughs) I can't think of anything. Oh, my God, that was awful. And they hired somebody with the biggest, with the best Brooklyn accents ever, didn't they, Carl? Like the guy from Teenage Mudder. Yeah. (laughs) They thought that would fix the problem of the characters being ciphers. If you know the character, that's one of the parts of the movie. You didn't, even us as the audience, you didn't know who to trust. That's part of the deal. Yeah. That's part of, yeah, the, um, the, the whole thing of what a horror movie is about. Yep. And you said something about the corridors. That's why he made the corridor so small, so you would have that claustrophobic feeling. Yep. People, and you're forgetting, 1982 pretty much was the start of the 80s, so people weren't ready for a depressing a depressing treatise on what it is to be human. Well, it goes back, goes season to our second film, too, but we'll talk about that a little later. Why do you think people weren't ready to watch two movies that were basically question what does it mean to be human no one wants to think that much I don't know I think uh, I think that Spock's death a couple weeks earlier had depressed everyone and even that other movie that made so much money that other movie with an alien in it, um, everybody wanted that feeling. Look, it was Reagan. I can't, was Reagan shot in 82? He was shot on my birthday, but I can't remember if it was 82 or not. 81. And, uh, um, okay, you know, here's the thing. Science people who like science fiction are usually very reflective and contemplative and like to think about these things. But if that's all you're going to feed them for weeks on end, everybody's going to get depressed. And not only that, most of us were poor. In 1982, there, there was a huge swelling of people who didn't have any money. Yeah. And what so, Kinks album had came out in eighty one, eighty two, Carl? Say that again. What Kinks album had come out in eighty one, eighty two? Um. Oh. Uh. Low budget. Yeah, low budget. We were coming off of the gas shortage. 
Right. And we were pretty much in the start of a major recession. That too. We were depressed. Yes. Well, we didn't have the money to go out and see every film. I mean, Jesus, the amount of great films that came out in 1982, there were just so many films that were going, well, money. Right. But everyone who's right. seen the see. thing of the normal people, normal sci-fi fans, non-elite, non-reviewers loved it. Right. But after all the crap that it got, which it, it got so bad that Carpenter banned the magazine Cinema Fantastique from any of his movie sets after that because he thought that they sabotaged his movie with the horrible review they gave it. Yeah, it's such a shame. I don't think, I don't think it was such that. Um, I mean, reviewers back then were definitely um, more admired and listened to than the stupid 30-year-olds out there reviewing movies now. But um, it wasn't just that. It wasn't just the bad reviews. No, it was too far ahead of its time. Once its time came, yeah. it was like, oh. I can remember yeah. having, I couldn't get people to watch it with me on HBO. I'm like, man, you got to see this. Uh, we'll watch it later. Well, it is pretty scary. Yeah. It's very scary. And, you know, if you're not up for being scared like that, it's it's hard to watch. And, and so is there I can a understand... bad performance? Go ahead, please. Sorry. Oh, I just can understand why people would, would balk at, um, you know, not watching it. Yeah. And is there a bad performance in that movie? No, not even close. No, the dog well, got really badass Wilfred Brimley. Yeah. <laughs> he was. Heck, it was Wilfred Brimley character that really got me. That's when I lost all hope is that one scene where he's talking to McCready when he's locked in the shed with a rope. Right, right. Don't trust him, Mac. Don't trust anyone. No. And now, that leads to a question because he was the thing at that point. Why would he try to? Why would the thing try to spread distrust with ev- between everyone? That's a nice touch. The monster was just trying to survive. It wasn't trying to kill. It wasn't trying to conquer. It's its nature, just like the alien. It was trying to hide while it's fixing its ride. Right. Well, what, if I could jump in here, um, and, and Vicki can back me up because I'm sure that she, at one point she's read the original story. But the whole story is about paranoia. And it's about, you know, not trusting anyone because there's this, there's this unknown thing that's taking people over and, and, and destroying uh, – destroying the, the status quo. 
But of course, a lot of that, the, uh, the story was written in the early 50s. So there's an amalgam there of, uh, of uh, UAC and, and communism taking over and things like that. So that was the seed to the story. And so you had to take that and, 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 uh, and, and I think he did an admirable job on, you know, making it not so uh, didactic and, 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 and that as it is in the story. Vicki, do you agree with me on that? Um, yeah, I do. Overall, I do. I'm sorry, Vicki. <laughs> it's just that um, when you're trying to put together a horror film, you don't need what romance, and you don't need um, character development. What you're trying to do is tell a story that is going to horrify the audience. And that's what John Carpenter's whole point of view was. And the, the short story itself gives you every single point, every clue, every pathway to tell that story on film. I think that Carpenter did a great job in taking that story and rendering it visually. Agreed. Hello? Yeah, we're here. I, we can hear you. Yeah, <laughs> I was just gone for a second, sorry, but... I mean... It's okay. Do you talk. think it was hard for people to try to wrap around their minds that the thing itself truly wasn't evil? Yeah, I, you know, the, ver- the very first time I saw it, I thought it was benign as far as its intent. I, I, the very first time I saw it, just like a virus, I've always thought yeah, of John that Carpenter's one thing as a Brindley. virus. Yeah. Always, the, it's the virus thing. The virus knows how to survive. The virus gets better as it, uh, see, it gets better also as it it infects more, just like right. a virus. It gets better at, at manipulating human beings so it can survive. But it's not like evil, like, ooh, the devil made it do it. Oh, God, it's, um, it's Lucifer, something like that. No, 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 no. It's not that. It's worse. It's absolutely Yeah, worse. and plus it came out a couple of years. Imagine if that version of the thing would have came out right at the height of the AIDS crisis. Ugh. Yeah, right. well, it kind of did. It was a little bit before. Um, yeah, just a tiny bit. Just, no, not, not for, Cal- wait, not for us in California. In yeah, New York, it was I, 82, 83, so, so it had yeah. just started, but AIDS hadn't been named yet. Wait, AIDS. wait. It was still... You know what? I lived through it, too, and I'm going to tell you this. I know when I moved to Santa Cruz, I know when I had my son, I know all those dates and everything, and I know exactly when my friends and I sat around talking about this thing that had no name, 
that was infecting everyone in San Francisco, and we were scared to death. Right. So you can't. What you can't we're saying is that, that eighty-two was was the government didn't acknowledge it until eighty-three, eighty-four. Yeah. Okay, that's the government. That's something different. But down here, where we all live, we knew that the thing was out there. Oh, oh there yeah. was something out there because because it was true here in New York too, uh, where I was right. working. Uh, most of my uh, clientele where I was working were gay, and and uh, trust me, there was. I heard many conversations at the Fishers. From my customers. Right. So, yeah. But right. No. We were scared. And that movie epitomized. Look at that movie doesn't have a government. They try to get in touch with the government, with their bosses, but they can't because it's been sabotaged. Just like nobody, just like the coronavirus. Nobody tells us what's going on. So you're left up to your own, your own wiles. To try to stay safe from this thing that you can't see. Well, actually, Vicky, if you know Swedish, if any of the guys in that camp would have known Swedish, it might have been a pretty short yes. book. <laughs> yes, right. If, if. Because I mean, really, if they fr- translated it. You idiots, what are you doing? It's a thing. It's an alien monster. Get the fuck away from it. Right, right. That's what the guy's saying to him. Exactly. And plus, they were isolated because it was the first day of winter. Well, the first day, like, out in there was, like, uh, dark for about three months. The wind and snow were so thick that there's no way they could have bounced a radio signal. And the only other post that was close to them was the one that got destroyed in the first place. Yep. But, yeah, it hit box office, and it flopped big time. It really didn't start catching on big until about 1990, I think, and that's when you started to see the reviewers start uh, changing their minds and all that. And to move on to the next film we have to talk about before we get to Blade Runner, what was the most bizarre, famous quote that John Carpenter said when asked why the thing failed? You know what it is, Carl? No, no, I can't. My movie. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Well, I knew it was no going to be E.T. I understood that. Yeah. No one expected E.T. Hell, there's the infamous story where they it was such a non-thing that when Steven Spielberg and E.T. went to M&M's to try to get them to use the right to the movie because they were going to use it in that one scene, the executive... They went to said, no, we don't want our our candy involved in a stupid little movie like that. 
I'm I'm wondering if that particular uh, uh, executive got fired like two days after the film premiered. Yeah, after, just the, after the first week grosses, you're fired. <laughs> and Reese's pe- Reese's had the Reese's pieces, but they weren't selling for crap, so they were like, uh, okay, we'll do it. We're desperate. Anything. And then, how big were Reese's Pieces in 82, 83, and 84? Oh, good God. Well, I don't think they ever dropped out of popularity. (laughs) No, not since then. That made them. Yep. Oh, there's no question about that. E.T. ruled 1982. There's just no other way about it. It was one of those bizarre phenomenon things that rarely happen nowadays and didn't happen that much back then. Where it would be like, I went to see the movie and I'd be like, God, I love that movie. And then the next week I'd take Carl. God, me and Carl would be like, yeah, I love that movie. Vicky would love it. Then the next week we'd take Vicky. Right. And then Vicky would be looking right. at us like, God, I love that movie. Would you come with me? I want to take Georgia to see it. Right. <coughs> that's what, right. That's, yeah, that was the end thing to do in 82. You got to see E.T. You got to take your kids. You got to take your family. It was the family event. Yep. Right. That's exactly right. what it was, too. And that's how movies back then built their 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 box office gains was through word of mouth and people wanting to see it again and take their friends and family. That's the way it used to work. There was no such thing as Friday's totals, Saturday's totals, and did it flop by Sunday. None of that crap that we have to endure yeah. today. It didn't matter if the first week's total is all anyone ever cares about. I mean, E.T. was like the number one, was in the top five all summer that year. And it was number one for a full month until uh, Conan came out. But, yeah, imagine if you're a hardcore side. Uh, you you have a hardcore sci-fi film, and then you see how big E.T.'s boxes was. Heck, Carpenter didn't even get scared until he had seen a work print of E.T. because all five of them were really working together at Universal. As soon as he's seen that, he's like, move my film away from E.T., Yep. Well, I know that I'm I'm with I'm I'm it's not a popular opinion, but I never liked E. T. <laughs> no, that's pretty much the consensus nowadays. You don't see people going back to it like they do the Disney movies. You don't see people going back to it like you do the Star Wars films. It was he it was it was the biggest thing ever in 1982 
But then about by 84, 85, no one gave a shit about it. When it finally hit VHS, no, no. no one bought it. No, I have to disagree with that. It was the highest grossing film for the entire decade. And no, so Batman it had, it had, it, no, he was. No, I can't. He was Batman. I would think exactly for the what decade, you thought, too. For the decade, I just read it. Yeah. For the, for the decade, it was Batman? But most lists don't adjust for inflation. So if you adjust for inflation, yeah, E.T. is the biggest film. That's why I don't like about most of the so-called box office lists for a decade. They don't adjust for inflation. True. Well, anyway, E.T. really overshadowed too many things. Too many things. I mean, there was product placement all over E.T. So you have those companies that had product placement in in uh, E.T. promoting E.T. And there were toys. There weren't Thing toys out there because Thing toys are too scary. But there were E.T. toys everywhere for, for years. Everywhere. I had a wind-up E.T. So, it was cool. <laughs> But well, let's not forget, that. okay, you know, they they were talking, we were talking earlier how they all said these films were different audiences. Well, in this case, E.T. was a different audience. E.T. was certainly a kid's film, and so there was hookups with, I'm sure, if not McDonald's, one of the big food, uh, fast food places, and so on and so forth, all marketing to the kids and family. And so that that makes sense. And anyone with, with, with a right mind, if they're looking at this, what else is at that point in time was being uh, marketed toward family? And probably not that much. I don't know the release at that point in time. I don't have that in front of me. But, you know, there's no question that E.T. was going to get that market and going to go over the top with that market. No question. Yeah. Well, look at another film that you and Vicky and me love to death, Dark City. God. Titanic destroyed that freaking yeah, movie. Yeah, it did. It did. And there's nothing in common with them besides Titan- Titanic was a phenomenon and Dark City had a shitty release date. Right. Very much so. No, Dark City didn't have a shitty release date. It was released on my birthday, so I kind of was okay. <laughs> yeah, when I say a crappy release date, I mean it was caught up in the Titanic juggernaut. People didn't expect, I didn't expect it to be as big as it was. People were what, still Titanic? going to theaters and watching Titanic in March, and the movie came out in December. Yeah. Right. Right. It was more than right, right, exactly. Because it was more than you can put. um, um, Can I can see it in my brain? But you can put a lot of different films in that phenomenon, and and they're not all forget 
you know, films that, that should be forgotten. I mean, are, are there really any standout performances in Titanic? Is the writing really that good? You know, the sets were nice, some of them. And the Bill whole Paxton spectacular... Great Bill Paxton is always great. Is always great, yes. Mr. Dreamy Eyes is in it, too, and I like him. And he always plays a good bad guy, so... And Kathy Bates, too. Yeah, yeah. I just... I I laughed when I saw her in it. <laughs> but E.T. basically dominated that summer. People didn't want to see scary aliens. They didn't want to see thoughtful aliens. They wanted to see cute little aliens that looked like squash tacos that wanted to fuck B. Wallace and get drunk on cores. <laughs> Would they have... The cute little kitty thing nowadays, guys. Get drunk on beer. <laughs> Probably not. And that I don't brings know. up things in the product placement. Yeah, E.T. gets drunk on cores. Elliot calls <laughs> Domino's. And right. what are they doing? Right. They're, They're playing Dungeons and Dragons. Coca-Cola's there, too. I mean, come on. Yeah, and they're drinking Coca-Cola. Wow. They're everything. Elliot is showing him his Star Wars figures. This was like really the start of product. This was like product placement, the movie. Right, right. It is. You, I think, I think when you research that, I think that E.T. was the first big, big, big one. Even though um, Close Encounters of the Third Time had a lot of product placement also. E.T. was... But that's how... Okay, so let's talk about Spielberg for a second. (laughs) During that time period, that's exactly how he financed. (laughs) Right, right, of course. And And in a certain way... You know, they would take a script, the the studio. They connected to to Spielberg or or to, to Lucas. Lucas was another one that would do this. Like, where can we put these? Because if we put this, this, and this, you know, product placement, we can get so much budget, and we can take that and put it in and, and, and give you better uh, um, uh, a PR and things like that. And that's exactly yeah. what they did. Yeah, okay, but, you know, again, it was recession, and you have this big blockbuster. So, in a way, it was, it was smart and innovative. To I'm not, get I'm not saying way. it wasn't smart. <laughs> not by a long shot. And the saying they took it too far like they do everything. Right. I totally agree. I agree. It is way too far. And before we get to the second film, do you honestly think that putting two R rated sci-fi movies that deal in the same subject, basically, which is what it means to be human, on the same freaking day was a bad mistake. Well, we said that right at the beginning. Yeah. You know, of of the podcast. It's, it's, It's one of the most stupid things you can think of. It's not even just that they're both two thinking people's movies. It's just that they're two 
much alike. They're the same genre. You don't release. When was the last time you saw two romantic, you know, comedies released on the same day? It's just ridiculous. Every Valentine's Day. Well, that's that, a point. But Valentine's Day is one of those made-up, for-money American things. Um, you can't Please, count those films as films. Can't count those films. They're not really films. And what's funny is we I moved mean, over that horror films are more popular on Valentine's Day than romantic films. Um, Ooh, I'm I don't so know. Scared. I want to snuggle up next to my honey. But, yeah, I mean, it's like the week before, I mean, that's what Blade Runner and the thing had to run. They had, like, Star Trek Two, still killing it at the box office. Uh, E.T., totally destroying anything that moves. And then you have them. I mean, how big an event was it for hardcore sci-fi fans when Blade Runner come out? The guy who made Alien, taking Philip K. Dick. One of the hardest to adapt authors in one of his most popular books. And we're going to make a movie of it. Well, it was pretty a pretty stunning film. I'm just talking about the advanced hype for it. You know. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they had taken it to uh, Sci-Fi Con, the annual New York Science Fiction Film Festival, and its five, ten-minute trailer went over like gangbusters. I mean, people were like frothing at the mouth waiting for this. Weren't you, Carl? Yeah. Oh, I was, no question. I was. I, and the other thing, for those people that knew, okay, so so... Phil K. Dick died before this, the film came out, but there was an article. It was um, where was it? I think it was in Fantastic actually, uh, yeah. where uh, really Scott talked about showing the film to to uh, uh, to him before he passed, and it's like and and he approved of it. So you know, I mean, as true Phil. K. Dick fans or Dickians, if you want to call us that, or Dickians, whatever you want to call us that. You know, we were all ready for this. We were all ready for this, and and I'll talk about my reaction later uh, to it because my reaction was sort of twofold. But uh, uh, but yeah, I mean, the pre for for me anyway, uh, this this was the one that was circled. It wasn't the start. Star Trek movie, even though I went to see that. This was the one I wanted to see badly. And I don't blame you. I mean, and another thing is they sold it as a Harrison Ford film. Star Wars, action, dun, 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 dun. Yep. And let's be honest, there were a lot of people that were pissed off that it was an action movie. <laughs> that it wasn't an action movie. 
No, exactly. Right. <laughs> no. I wanted Han Solo in Indiana freaking Jones. What the hell is this? Yeah, it's more like your romantic movie, but then again, that's not even the book. <laughs> and let's be honest, they they tried to make it too many things. They tried to make it a Philip Dick movie, which it did good at. They tried to make it a sci-fi film, they tried to good at. They tried to make it a noir film, which they horribly failed at. What's your opinion of the narration of Vicky? In the I never had a pro- you know what? I'm sorry, I never had a problem with it. The here's the problem with the narration. It's done by Han Solo. If it wasn't done by Han Solo, if it was done by Roy Batty maybe, it would be uh, it would be better. Okay, right. now let's go back, and this is the second surprise here. We'll be back in a little bit, to, and I'll tell a little story about it, and here we go. Begin again in a golden land of opportunity and adventure. New climate, recreational facilities. They don't advertise for killers in a newspaper. That was my profession. Ex-cop. Ex-blade runner. Ex killer. Use your new friend as a personal He say you braid runner. Tell him I'm eating. Captain Brian Toga. Any mail. Brian, huh? The charmer's name was Gaff. I'd seen him around. Bryant must have upped him to the Blade Runner unit. That gibberish he talked was city-speak, gutter talk, a mishmash of Japanese, Spanish, German, what have you. I didn't really need a translator. I knew the lingo every good cop did. But I wasn't going to make it easier for him. Come on, don't be an asshole, Decker. I've got four skin jobs walking the streets. Skin jobs, that's what Bryant called replicants. In history books, he's the kind of cop used to call black men niggers. Let's quit when I come in here, Bryant. I'm twice as quit now. Stop right where you are. You know the score, pal? You're not cop, you're little people. Quit because I'd had a belly full of killing. But then I'd rather be a killer than a victim. And that's exactly what Bryant's threat about little people meant. So I hooked in once more, thinking that if I couldn't take it, I'd split later. I didn't have to worry about Gaff. He was brown-nosing for a promotion, so he didn't want me back anyway. I didn't know whether Leon gave Holden a legit address. But it was the only lead I had, so I checked it out. Whatever was in the bathtub was not human. Replicants don't have scales.
And family photos? Replicants didn't have families either. Tyrell really did a job on Rachel. Right down to a snapshot of a mother she never had. A daughter she never was. Replicants weren't supposed to have feelings. Neither were Blade Runners. What the hell was happening to me? Leon's pictures had to be as phony as Rachel's. I didn't know why a replicant would collect photos. Maybe they were like Rachel. They needed memories. The report would be routine retirement of a replicant, which didn't make me feel any better about shooting a woman in the back. There it was again. Feeling in myself. For her. For Rachel. I don't know why he saved my life. Maybe in those last moments he loved life more than he ever had before. Not just his life. Anybody's life. My life. All he'd wanted were the same answers the rest of us want. Where do I come from? Where am I going? How long have I got? All I could do was sit there and watch him die. Gaff had been there and let her live. Four years, he figured. He was wrong. Tyrell had told me Rachel was special. No termination date. I didn't know how long we'd have together. Who does? That was some of the most <laughs> heavy-handed crap I have ever heard. Bryant was the kind of cop in the old days would call blacks diggers. I already got that from just hearing them use the word skin job. It's M. Emmett Walsh. You don't need to hammer us over the head with the points. And hammering it with the photos four, two or three times. Why do they need photos? Why do they need photos? They need memories. There's a reason why they're taken out. All that information is shown on screen, but you have to look for it. And to me, that's better than being having it written on a big steel hammer and it hit you on the head with it. What do you guys nope. think? Agreed. I think, like I was saying before, I don't think the words are the problem. And I think that the words could have worked in that film if somebody else other than monotone Harrison Ford, whom I know this is sacrilegious, but I don't like anyway, um, if he wasn't narrating. He shit on it on purpose, Vicky, so you're on point. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody.
anybody else. A nobody could have read it better than him. Anybody else could have read He read it as if he was reading it for the very first time with no emotion at all. None. Yeah, like I Do said, you even... he shit on it on purpose, right, Carl? Yep. Because he's an asshole? Yeah. Yes, he hated the narration so much that he decided to shit to talk to it like this. Well, Harrison Ford is an asshole anyway because all these people love him. Han Solo, Indiana Jones, blah, 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 blah. But you know what? Those things that made him a star, he hates them. He wanted um, Han Solo dead. Finally, they killed him because they were tired of his whining. And Indiana Jones? We don't need him as Indiana Jones ever again. We need a new one because, frankly, he's not that dynamic of an actor. Screw and, him. And plus that stupid happy ending. How for Carl, did you think that that happy ending narration at the very end was bullshit when you first seen it? <laughs> Well, well, okay. So let's let's talk about my reactions. Okay. So we we were talking about this over the phone before the show. Yeah. Um, so I went to see this in New York. Now, there are so many different cuts of this film, but the one that I saw was the U.S. theatrical cut. So that's that's what I'm going to talk about right now. Okay. So my reaction was a couple was twofold. Uh. Also remember that I read the article that Philip K. Dick had given his blessing. Okay? So keep that in mind here. So the first reaction was to the tone and the visuals of the of the film, which just friggin' floored me. I'd never Yeah, that's why you didn't need the narration. It. it was all visually there. I mean, it was just amazing. The visual, and of course, there's that very famous shot of the Coke uh, uh, sign with the Asian woman and 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 the and, and the spaceships and that going by, and it's just like your mouth is on the floor. You've never seen anything like that in 1982. Nothing even close. Miniature work was absolutely stellar. Uh, you know, so you see all that. Now, know also that I've read the book. Okay, so my reaction to the plot of it was I was disappointed. Now that also comes through to the uh, to a certain extent the uh, the narration. Uh, but I also understood why they went that way with it. I don't agree, I didn't agree with it, but I understood what they were trying to do. Because if you read the novel, there is that sense of noir in the novel. And, 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 and uh, of course, Decker has a lot to do with that because he's the main character and he's telling you what's going on. Um, for most of the book, anyway. But, uh, yeah. So, so I, I had a really, like, a dual reaction. I was disappointed to some extent, but I was absolutely ecstatic to another extent. So it was very much almost like being schizophrenic or bipolar with the Oh, film. and here's something weird. What movie did Ridley Scott steal footage from to cr- 
create his happy ending. Oh, I should know this. Uh, um, um, you know, Vicky? No. I mean, I probably do in the back of my memory somewhere. I can't remember, but but I I know I know I know he did. But go ahead. I Stanley think Kubrick's I think I know. Okay, it was the shining. That's it. Yeah. If you look at it when it's far away, it's Jack Nicholson and Shelley Duvall's car from The Shining until they do the close up, and then it's the future car. Ah, that's interesting. I have the studio made him put that happy ending on it. Right. Everyone knows that. I mean, I think everyone knows that. Yeah. But still, I've seen it in the theaters, and even though the narration has aged well, it still was an amazing movie. Visually, it was jaw-dropping. Right. I saw it in the theater, too, and I was, like, stunned by it. But... You always know what's going on with a movie after you leave the theater and you start thinking about it. That's when I knew there were problems with the movie. After I left and we all started talking about the movie. And but everyone loved Harrison Ford back then, so you know I couldn't. I never really talked about how much I dislike him until. Well, let's be honest. People were not talking about how great Harrison Ford was after that movie came out. Walking out of the film. No. People were like, my God, who is this blonde-haired Swedish actor who played Roy Batty? Exactly. Exactly. The man who steals the movie, yes. He becomes the heart and soul of the movie in the last quarter, doesn't he, Yeah, absolutely. Now, I, I have to give a shout-out to somebody else, too, because because uh, everyone's talking about Roy Batty as well they should. But for me, it was always Sebastian. Oh, God, yeah. Well, Sebastian has a very big part in the book. And yes, he does. I I was disappointed that Sebastian's part in the film was was downplayed. Yeah, which well, I felt bad about too. He's an enabler, but in the book, he's got an entire he's got a lot of things to say about. Um, society and socialization within the the book civilization, and that was not in the movie at all. Yeah. No, not at all. And the one part that they cut out, and you could only see part, you can only see it uncut in the deleted scenes, is. The Tyrell Roy Batty scene, and it would have explained why he crushes uh, Tyrell's head. Okay. It would explains that Tyrell himself is a replicant, and the only true and the only true humans left on the Earth are those that are considered too sickly to take with them. 
right. I mean, how big of a moment is that? It's basically Roy fighting the whole film to find God and to find out that God is him. Yep. And that there's no hope at all left. Yeah, it's it, it really is something. I, you know, when it comes to the film itself, um, and it depends. You know, I mean, we all have our our favorite cuts of it. Um, I think it's a really good film. I would still like to see a version, uh, probably more likely a mini series, on the actual novel, because it is much different. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. It is much, but it's much still different. still an amazing freaking movie with great performance. Oh. I mean, look at how many careers it made. Uh, Sean Young. Yep. Daryl Hannah. Byron James. Mm-hmm. Good stuff. What are you going to say, Vicky? I was going to say, didn't Daryl Hannah already have a career before this yeah, movie? Yeah, she basically did at that point. She well, did. so did uh, Rutger Hauer, but that film made, set them in the stone, made them. Rutger Hauer is and between Nighthawks and Blade Runner. Edward James almost. Oh, yeah. Oh. Tell me that that but is a great performance. Yeah. That is the standout performance along with Rutger Hauer. You did a man's Agreed. job, sir. But who's yeah. to say what a man is nowadays? <laughs> it's too bad she won't live forever. But who does? Yeah, but who does? But right. That leaves a big question. Why did Gaff not kill her at the end of the movie? Because he knew her lifespan. Or thought he did anyway. Yeah, that's what. Yeah, but. I think he. That's what I always thought. No, go ahead. I mean, if you know for sure. If he would have killed her, that would have been his promotion right there. Maybe he didn't want to be promoted. That's another thing. I think he. He, I think he was looking at um, at Deckard's life and saying, "Whoa, you know what? I don't want to be that guy. That guy's yeah. fucked up, and I don't want to be him." And we got the final cut, maybe about ninety-five. No, we got the director's cut about ninety-five, ninety-six, which is basically the same cut. Then, so the second cut. We got was on VHS, and that's called the gore cut, because they added every bit of freaking violence they had in the movie back into it. Right. And it has Tyrell's death in it, but it doesn't have the bit which is cut out with all of the springs and stuff coming out of Tyrell's mouth, which just changed it from... Him finding, we us finding out that there's no hope, Tyrell's a replicant and all that, 
until Roy becoming a fucking murderer, and then all of a sudden he's just playing with uh, Deckard and saves his life. What the fuck? <laughs> yep. No. So what are your favorite versions of the film, guys? Oh, Vicky, you go first. What's yours? Okay, first I also want to mention Joanna Cassidy because even oh. though her part was was small, I, the, the one thing that I wish is that we had a little bit more of the replicants in the film and especially hers because I found her fascinating. And I found her fear, you know, when she realizes who Deckard is and that building fear and her trying to figure out how to get away from him. And as she's dying, crashing through all, I mean, that was a spectacular scene, crashing through all the glass. uh, Her part was fantastic and huge and too small. And so everyone knows Joanna Cassidy because she's such a great actress. But and I thought she dies like an animal too. too, which is a the reviewers got pissed right. off about that, didn't they, Carl? Yes, they did. They're like, why did Joanna Cassidy have to die like an animal? She was a robot. Why couldn't they have just done it like a trade action scene? That wasn't the point. Exactly. No, they didn't get it. I think they yeah, were too the point was tired that of Dick thinking. Was just a butcher. Right, exactly. And so, um, I I like both versions. I like the first version I saw. If I'm going to, if I want to watch Blade Runner, but I don't have two hours, I'll watch the first one. Or I guess you know, well, no, it's only ninety minutes or so, hundred minutes. Um, I'll watch the first one. If I really want to watch, I'll watch the um, the director's cut. I like that one. I'm going to sneeze. Sorry. <coughs> Sorry. Excuse me. I like the director's I, cut. Yeah. I love uh, the final cut. I love how slow-paced it is. That beautiful two-minute opening, which really caused the descent into hell scene. With the fire, you're, you're falling into the city with the fire right. blowing and all that. Yeah, that's beautiful. You're right. Beautiful. And I, Carl says no, but I've argued with him about it. I want to see what you think. The narrationless cut is the first cut to make the city more of a prominent character in the movie than in the theatrical cut, where every time they show a shot of the city, you're distracted by the narration. Right. It does. It's, um, it, I think that, you know, um, the city should be highlighted. I think it is a character in the story. I mean, it's Here's more than just ambiance. Yeah. Here's the best way to describe it for you, Carl. And this is me being serious. What if some studio executive, because he didn't understand Days of Heaven, had the woman that survives at the end of the movie do narration about what we have just seen 
over every shot of flowing grass. Uh, I, I think it's even more pronounced if you talk about Dark City and what they did with Dark City. But yeah, basically, I would shoot the uh, the uh, the executive, and uh, you know, and it wouldn't even be murdered. Be, be, uh, yeah, Dark City uh, was bad. It should, the theatrical yeah. cut of Dark City opened with some dialogue that we heard for the second time about forty one hour and 20, 35 minutes in the movie. Yeah. They had the wrong yep. narrator in that, too. No, keys are so no, uh, no, no. He shouldn't have been the... I don't. I still don't think he should have been the narrator. I think it was wrong. Okay. Well, he was the narrator. Hold on. Uh, I just uh, wanted to say you made a comment about the final cut with, with, without uh, the narration. And you said the city was more prominent. Well, of course, if you have no narration, you're going to focus more on what's being seen. So, you know, that's the whole point of cutting out the narration. That's that, you know, when you take a look at the first cut, you know, the theatrical cut U.S., uh, with, you know, that was one of my problems with it, was the narration. And so I happen to agree with you in terms that... Uh, the final cut is a much better uh, uh, cut of it because the narration is gone. I'm just mad they never come out with umbrellas like in Blade Runner. I would have killed for an umbrella with the neon light inside of it. Oh, <laughs> hell yeah. But Vicky, you don't understand, he wasn't the narrator. They just added that app back they just added a scene from later in the movie because we're stupid. Well, yeah. I mean, even to today, even today, they still release the dumb version for America and the smart version for Europe. No matter what no, movie it is. No, there's a director's cut Blu-ray. I've got it. No, no. I'm I'm not talking about Blade Runner in particular, I'm talking about all movies. There yeah. are two different Snowpiercers, right? Because Snowpiercer is just too cerebral for Americans, which, you know, in Trump's America, probably they're right, I guess. But um, Snowpiercer, there was that big debate over, are they going to release the real movie or the American version? You know, of course, we're just dumb, dumb Americans. Yeah, but here's the big thing. How many movies, sci-fi or noir, since Blade Runner has copied Blade Runner's look? Oh, God. Do you have a number? (laughs) No. We have another two hours. Lots. Yeah. Lots and lots and lots. And they put out Blade Runner like, toys too, which I'm sad I didn't get that hover car. Damn it! You know what I always wanted? I wanted one of the the the, the animals. I I wanted an electric sheep, or I wanted a I, particularly the owl. 
you know. Which was another uh, thing I didn't like about the movie. They downplayed that, and that is really, really important. Yeah, and that, that was one of the big problems I had with it, too. Right. Because I knew because the animal, they used the owl to really give you the clue of how to tell a replicant or not, which is their eyes glow with light. Now Which we're going to bring up what, the big. What do you say? Finish, Vicky. Go ahead. Okay. Which means, in the Blade Runner world, that the replicants are more human than anyone else. <laughs> mhm. Carl, what is the the motto of Tyrell Corporation? More human than human. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Thank you. You're welcome, because I, I hear you hesitate. Fuck, I know that. Yeah, more human than human. But still, it's about, I think it's funny that it shows Deckard, if you believe one way, which we'll get to him when the big question, he's either a human that's lost his humanity dealing with people that treasure what he doesn't give a shit about, more than he ever could. Or? Or he's a, a replicant that doesn't understand he's a replicant and has been beaten down by life. That's the big question. Is Deckard a replicant or not? I don't know. Even... Even today, I still think that's a stupid question. Oh, good. Say why you think it's stupid, please. Because he's not. If he is, and and he's running around killing his own kind, then then the whole point of Philip K. Dick's novel and the whole point for making a story from that novel goes away. I'm sorry. If Deckard isn't human, then the point of it all is gone. And I couldn't say it any better. Thank you, Vicki. <laughs> You're welcome. And plus, like but, I said, with him being human, which I think I think it, it plays better with him <laughs> as a human, is that we're having a human that's lost his humanity dealing with artificial beings who treasure the humanity that he doesn't give a shit about more exactly. than he does. Exactly. And not only that, he regains his humanity by interacting with something that's inhuman. Yeah. Which is part of the deal well, in the novel, too. What's more human? I guess, I guess, though, in the film, I don't see that regaining his his humanity. I just don't see it. No, well, in the okay, novel, no problem. The, the, the what? The false ending? The happy Hollywood ending? Well, no, well, you know, you know, even without the false ending, uh, 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 you know, the the whole re- relationship with Rachel and how that changes him, because it is it ha- it does absolutely fundamentally change him. Should have left yeah, that. They should have not when put you in really fall in love 
it doesn't have to be I'm falling in. There's no, there's never anything that Deckard says or does, no scene ever that says, wow, I'm a human. I'm falling in love with a replicant. No, Wow, no, that no, is no, crazy. No. And so, no, and that, so, that, of course, is not there because that's not realistic. Yeah. Wait. And let's but, be honest. They should have. If I was directing the movie, I would have cut out the sex scene between him and Rachel. Oh, yeah, that's just awful. Harrison Ford is not. That's puke. Puke bag. Not for the reason that you think. It's just it plays less of a seduction than of a, 20, a 25, 30-year-old man raping a fucking 8-year-old. I'm not joking. As innocent as Sean Lung plays it, and he's there. Touch me there. Kiss me. He forces no. her. No, it is a bit creepy. I, I grant you that. Absolutely. That's more than a bit creepy. With that too. <laughs> of course, that is yeah, in the novel. That one came out in that year, and it died at the box office. But it was immediately loved, too, because, hey, once it hit VHS, this is the, one of the first VHS classics, because as soon as Blade Runner hit VHS, everyone fell in love with it. Right. It's it's had an easier going than the thing did. I agree. Well, again, I think like I have June. to. I think I, it, I think I, I have to point. Okay, go ahead, Vicky. Oh, okay, when you're talking about the release of um, these films on DVD, Dune was uh, panned universally, and but once it was released on DVD, and people had time to to sit and stop and watch it again, eat popcorn or then just like with Blade Runner, those two films became instant cult classics because of VHS. Whereas the thing did not for some reason. No. It took a while for that one to catch on. Okay. I think again if I can pop in now uh, one of the things that really made Blade Runner uh, uh, go over the top was that it was the word of mouth about the visuals. And, you know, I mean, I remember talking to some kids who were working with me. I was at the store at the point. Uh, I was visiting. And, and um, I, told, uh, I told them to go watch this. And, and they came back and it's like, Wow, we've never seen anything like that. I told friends of mine. And so with the visuals and that whole sense of <coughs> a whole new world that you're seeing for the first time, I think that's what really, really took it over the top so quickly and where it got the word of mouth. At least that's my feeling on it. And we got to hear a little bit of that. The, another great part of the, both of these movies with the clips that I played on here the Vangelis soundtrack to Blade Runner is fucking 
freaking amazing. Yes. Yes, it is. The best one they've ever done, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, no, you like Jerry the Firebender. What? Say that again, Steve? You like Chariots the Firebender. <laughs> oh, fuck you. <laughs> you wait, wait. You you think that Blade Runner is the best evangelist? Yeah. Oh, God. No, not even. Okay, not so even. tell me. Um, the 14, 1492, that's some really good stuff by Vangelis. Plus, living, um, the year of living dangerously, that's some really good stuff by Vangelis. That's a good one. That's a good one. I, I grant yeah. you on that one, too. Vangelis yeah, is I one mean, of the best of the synth pop soundtrack groups of the 80s. Yeah. 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 There's some really good Vangelis that has nothing to do with um, Blade Runner out there. I have all of it. I have to admit. Okay. And if you want to get the Blade Runner soundtrack, look for the three-disc integral version. Right, because you can be ripped off. When I was a lot, lot younger, um, I'm like, whoa, three bucks for the Blade Runner? Well, I'm going to get this. Because, you know, I was poor. Three bucks? Well, it was some jerk on his synthesizer pretending to be Vangelis. Okay? you got to look very carefully. Make sure it's really Vangelis, not Van so-and-so doing Vangelis' Blade Runner. <laughs> yeah. And uh, let's talk about a little bit about 80s noir, period. How many times, even with uh, stuff like Manhunter, Miami Vice, that used the Vangelis Blade Runner soundtrack style? Right. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But here's the big question. Do you think Blade Runner would have done better at the box office if it would have been released in Ridley Scott? preferred version rather than that oh, wonky yeah. one that we got. And in July, yeah, it would have been a whole different thing. And the other one we haven't talked about, well, the thing is a good, great score. But the problem is, is that you don't get El Maestro to do a full 56-minute soundtrack and only use 10 minutes of the music. <laughs> yeah. We didn't even know it existed until they decided to put out an album of it, and they they went to El Maestro, and when he, they said to him, he said, we would like to put out the soundtrack. He's like, there's only 10 minutes. Do you have anything else? You're like, okay, I recorded one hour. Here's the music. Just put it out. Fuck Carpenter. Even I thought it was bizarre. There's certain artists, directors, I'm like, why are you hiring someone to do your score when you do your own scores and you do it in your own style and it's more of a thumbprint on your freaking movies than anything else? Right. 
Right, you, say, Carl? you know, escape oh, from ahead, New please. York, man. Carl? No. Huh, he's not there. No, but yeah. Well, if you just, the escape from New York, for me, if we were doing a John Carpenter um, show, Escape from New York is my John Carpenter film, the one that really got me into who he was, what he did, and why I like him as director and musical um, uh, score, all of that. Because Escape from New York is just, it's a perfect little movie. And it, it's, it's small but ambitious, and its music is perfect for what happens. So when... I went out and I bought the Thing music on vinyl, and I don't have it anymore, and that's a long story. Actually, kind of short. When I bought the Thing music and I'm looking, reading the album, remember how you used to be able to read the album and get all kinds of information about everything? Well, it's all right there. And I'm just like, what? Who is this guy, Inyo? Eo, wow, he's Italian like me. All right, cool. What's this all about? <laughs> and so but, that was a that was a an eye opener as to soundtrack music and what the power of a director. Yeah, I mean, it seems that. Carpenter wanted a soundtrack that sounded different than what he did before, but he ended up taking the music and taking everything that was different about it out. Well, don't forget that John Carpenter is also the son of a composer. And so, right. you know, you you may you may make some some uh uh, uh, you may want one thing, but then you change your mind, and so on and so forth. I mean, that happens all the time. You rewrite, you rethink, and so, so yeah. This whole thing with with him getting getting uh, uh, Morricone involved in the thing, and then deciding not to use all of it and that sort of thing. He's thinking not only as a filmmaker; he's thinking of it as a composer too. True. And he should have composed it himself rather than ruin a great. I don't know. The score is beautiful, and where he uses it in the film is the the point in the film when the music and what is happening and what this this thing really is, and that's with the dog. When that happens, the music is sublime and it's haunted me my entire life that's why I went out and bought that album I was poor back then remember and I went out and I spent money on that because that music haunted me did you steal that album from Vicky Carl no 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 no. the reason why I had to sell it so let's not talk about it (laughs) well you should have just gave it it, to me what can I get in here for a second? Because I want to just amplify no. what what Vic said. Um, the what happened finally with the soundtrack? 
and how it all came together and how it's put together, I don't think it could be put together any better. I think the use of both sources of music, of both Carpenter and Morricone, and how it's put together is sublime. I think I think it is really well done. I don't think that Carpenter had it in him to be able to be Morricone. I don't think also that using all Morricone would have been as good as using the combination of the two. That's what I wanted to say. I agree. I agree. Because even John Carpenter agrees. Because for one thing, he wasn't up for writing the script. He just wanted to direct it. And he wasn't really, he knew what he wanted as the music, but he wasn't up for the entire score either. Plus also the, 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 uh, the differences in stylism between what, what he does and what Morcone does uh, uh, as a general rule are completely different. And so it's the amalgamation of the two that really work and where they're placed within the, within the film themselves and what exactly. they, what they complement, what scenes. And so when you start tearing apart a film and you put in um, egos, then then the film becomes nothing. It's the end product of the film and how it is recepted by its audience. That that is what your 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 whole point is. And so whether it's two different musical artists coming together to make something really beautiful or whether it's just one, it doesn't matter in the end uh, if if it works, then it it works. And with nine minutes left, here is the last questions. What do you think of the changes that the thing and Blade Runner did to sci fi? Sci fi movies to be exact. Well, yeah, just, just that whole month, how uh, Star Trek became a fan, a God franchise again. Uh, E.T. came out and showed that family-friendly sci-fi still sold. And then you had the thing in Blade Runner, which really changed how movies looked. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. As much as Star Wars changed the way movies looked. Blade Runner did too. I agree. Science fiction. I agree. Well, I think what it did was it opened up more possibilities. It it finally gave creative people out there. Um, up until about the ninety or the eighties, uh, up until Alien and Star Wars, but Star Wars is boy fantasy. Um. You know, sci-fi has this, this baggage over its shoulder, and it's called the, um, the idea that it's for adolescent boys. And, and video games help promote that idea. Big-breasted women with um, um, scantily clothes and guns in their hands, okay, um, out there in space, Barbarella, that kind of stuff. Um, what about Tomb Raider? That's what, well, yeah. Big booby women in scantily clad shorts and shorts and tank top 
On a frickin' mountain! In snow! Now, the thing is about that, is that these two movies gave creators a license to branch away from that adolescent bullshit of we got to have the romantic thing, we got to have the scantily clothed women, we got to have all those trappings that were burdening science fiction. So these films opened up new pathways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you have any last words, Carl? Well, uh, in answer to your question, I think there, are, there, there's one particular thing. I think for Blade Runner, it's the visuals. It's it's the the, the work that Doug Trumbull did. <laughs> it's it's the whole visual landscape of the film. It then is translated as you go on and is adapted by so many different films. And of course, then if you take a look at the thing, it's the practical effects, and it's what they did. And, and, and to this day, it's one of the scariest goddamn movies ever. And that and, and the effects are, are are the premium reason why that's why that's thing thing. And so that's what I look at. I look at it more from a technical end, what they did, and then how people took those technical advances and moved on with them. Yeah. So that's our legacy. <laughs> okay. What about you, Steve? Yeah, well, I agree with both of you. I mean, with Blade Runner, it's just the amount of detail in there. It's like the famous scene of the Coca-Cola and the Japanese uh, woman there. <laughs> You've seen ships flying all over the place. You've seen people walking by with with umbrellas. You've seen the Japanese market. You've seen the sign up there. The off-world colonies. It's just so visually busy. Everything yeah. in the movie is alive. Mm-hmm. Agree. 100%. Yeah, I agree. Well, thank anyway, happy anniversary to both of them, and thank you for being as great movies as you are. Tomorrow night is a sad episode. We're going to be doing a... R.I.P. to El Maestro himself, Ennio Morricone. From spaghetti westerns to crime films to melodramas, he did it. He pretty much did it all. Yep, he did. So tomorrow night, Even television. me, Mike House, the great Vicky Love, and anyone else who wants to come in. That would be me. We'll be on the show. <laughs> oh, yeah, and Carl, too. <laughs> yep. We'll be doing an RIP to Ennio Morricone. We hope you enjoyed these shows. And if you haven't seen these movies in a while, we hope you this encourages you to watch them. Okay, Absolutely. here's the big question for all of us. Forget Blade Runner and the Sing as just yourselves. What were you guys' favorite sci fi film of eighty two eighty three? Mm. Well, I you know, I love 
um, uh, I love the three that we talked about today, which was yeah. also the Rapicon. And, you know, there was the Terminator was in there. Love uh, that. Terminator was I mean, I just, Was it? Yeah, okay. Conan was well, his film of 82. Yeah, but see, I don't consider that. When I write about science fiction, Conan is fantasy, and it's not, it doesn't belong in science fiction. And so Conan, I love Conan. I love that movie. That movie is so much fun. That movie has got Darth Vader before Darth Vader. Well, I guess not before Darth Vader. But, I mean, it's just, it's got so many great things in it. The fifth element. And the reason when did that I brought Conan into it is one is part of Universal Six and two. Pretty much Conan and Ray Bradbury's and the sci-fi works were published in the same magazine. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. I don't know. It was a really good time for science fiction. I don't think we've ever had a time for science fiction than like the late 70s, early 80s. I don't think we've ever had a, 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 Mm -hmm. you know, a blooming of so much. Yeah. What about you, Carl? Well, you know, really when it comes down to it, I think I'd have to go... I'd have to go Canada? with Blade Runner. Oh, Blade um, Runner. There, there is one other one that we should mention that I really, really liked, uh, uh, and that is Liquid Sky. Of course, that was a New York thing, um, and I saw that in New York. I was at the premiere for that. For clarity, he watched uh, it on TV last year, and he's like, I hate this piece of shit. <laughs> Who was this? You. No, I didn't say I hated it. I I I liked it at the time. Remember, we're no, talking I'm talking about when you just rewatched it a couple of years ago, when Chrissy gave it to you. Yeah, it, it's it's a little problematic, but still, yeah. I liked it. Uh, I'll tell you another one that that I know you like. Mm-hmm. Uh, Class of 1984 came out in 1982. Oh yeah, post Duke Punk. Yeah, but that one isn't my favorite. No, yours is the, the 90s one, right? No. My favorite of 82, 83 is a film that was supposed to come out in 1982, but as soon as E.T. hit and The Thing and uh, Blade Runner flopped and the fact that Universal didn't know what the hell they had, <laughs> it came drum. out in early 83. Right, right that's Videodrome. Video yep. Yeah, Videodrome. Welcome yeah, to that's you. 1983 for me. <laughs> yeah. That's 1983. Well, it came out earlier in Canada. It's no. just in the U.S. Tron, you didn't, you didn't know what that Tron came, came out in 83, too. Tron yeah. came out in 82. Tron flopped. And then the video game I know, came out. But it also re-released. came out in 82. That's yeah, what I'm just saying. It also came out in 82, and it was... You know, it wasn't as good as the other ones, but it certainly was innovative. You've never seen anything like that either. 
This is There's when, a reason when, why a band of the 80s called 1982 one of the best years of film ever. Oh, yeah. And it shows one of the problems that was barely starting in 82. In this, nowadays, it's become a disaster, which is overbooking. Yeah. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. What? 1982. Got it, got it, got it. I'm just looking at 1982 right now. Android yeah. came out. Android. Yeah, I love that Ann movie. Opera and Klaus Kinski. Yeah. Right. Love that freaking movie. But, yeah, I mean, how bad have they gotten for overbooking movies? It's like uh, last summer when I went and seen Rocket Man. Uh, Godzilla came out that same week. Uh <laughs> Uh, I forgot what animated film came out that week, but still, there's like three or four A-list titles. Right, Zootopia or something. Yeah. Mhm. I don't mind if a family movie like Zootopia comes out when a more adult movie comes out on the same weekend, because that'll keep the kids out of the theater, so I don't have to listen to and be bothered by children. Since I work with children, I don't like to see them outside of school. And, and that's so, what they were expecting, <laughs> to be honest. They yeah, were so that's fine. That the parents would come to the theater, drop their kids off, and go see E.T., and then they would go buy their tickets and go over to the theater next door and watch the thing. Yeah, I mean, that happens. No, whatever adult movie they decide to go see. That was the summer that Spielberg became Spielberg. Because he had two of the biggest hits that summer. Uh, One was E.T. and the other was Poltergeist. You know what, guys, want to know what was really disturbing, and this is the last. By the end of the summer, they were booking E.T. and Poltergeist as a double feature. Yes, they were. Yeah, and I Steven know. Spielberg were like, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> yep. Can you guys, Vicky? can you think of one thing wrong of uh, a booking uh, E.T. and Poltergeist as a double feature? <laughs> well, if it's at the drive-in, this is what you do. You watch E.T., first, you put that on first, and then you tuck the kids uh, in to go to sleep for Poltergeist. <laughs> no, they did it in indoor theaters. Well, that's just stupid. No, I remember yeah. I remember. I remember it's just stupid. I don't know. It, those people back then... You know, people were having a really hard time understanding the audience. The, there was such a gulf between the elite and the rest of us. I mean, it's happening again. It's happening right now. But back then it was also happening because there were movies out that uh, that, that happened to. I know we're almost out of time. That happened. Yeah. And again, well, tomorrow night we're doing Enio, and thank you guys for showing up. This has been fun. Oh, absolutely. It's been yeah. a blast. 
everybody. We'll see you tomorrow. And to everyone who listens to us regularly or those of us turning in, we love you. We love all of you. We love you. Yep, we certainly do. Except you, that guy over there writing, talking shit about us while listening to you. Yeah, we find, we know. We know. I know you're out there doing it. <laughs> Just about to shut up because we know. And we can get your address, too. <laughs> Good night, everybody. Good night. Biggie? Oh, good night. I, Stephen, you should be the last one. <laughs> yeah, she fell. Asleep. She's falling asleep now. <laughs> no, hey, it's not. That's it, it's it's man. It's game over, man. It's game over.